is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Sean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Hopefully this week our audio issues have been sorted out. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. Uh, this week we but have watched... People did get my charming introduction to the theme music. Yes. I still have to listen to that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I've had a very busy week. Uh, so we've watched a movie that I've been anticipating for us to watch for quite a while now. It's a Richard Gere, Edward Norton helmed film, Primal Fear. But first, we're going to get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure thing. Well, last week we talked about From Dusk Till Dawn, and this week I have its two sequels to talk about. So the first off there is From Dusk Till Dawn to Texas Blood Money, which is directed by Scott Spiegel. It's a direct-to-video movie, both of them are. Both of them were pretty much filmed back-to-back and put out. This one is about a crew of robbers who set out on a bank heist, but they begin being stealthily turned one by one into vampires. And uh, okay. Danny Trejo rocks up in it. As even the same though, character? Uh, seems like it, even though it takes place after that first movie. But he starts out this whole thing because one of the bank robbers hits a bat while he's driving and it actually turns out to be a vampire, so all the vampires get real angry and come after him. And then once okay. he's a vampire, he starts turning all the other bank robbers one by one during the heist. That actually, that actually almost happened to uh, Holly and I. Funny story. There was no bank robbery involved. We were coming, we were coming back, back from movies. We were coming back from Sonic the Hedgehog, and I was driving home, and a bat flies at my windscreen. Scares the shit out of me. It's at night. Nothing, everything was okay. Everything was fine. But it flew right at me. I stared down the barrel of a bat just staring at me. So, I do not want this vampire thing to happen. It was no. a while back, but still. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're immortal. They live forever. They're, their vengeance can come any day. Well, that was probably the most interesting thing that I have to say about this movie is that whole plot synopsis because this is a truly pointless film. It, there's no reason for it to, to exist. It is dull and lazy at every turn. The narrative is just a nothing. They hang out at a hotel and then they go to the bank. The vampire involvement is just ridiculous, even putting aside all the continuity issues that it brings up. There's no sense of urgency. There's no pulse to the movie. The character works virtually non-existent. You've got a couple of halfway decent exchanges that evoke the vaguest echo of Tarantino, but for the most part, it's just a bad script about a group of underdeveloped, nasty people. It's going through the motions. It even starts off with this bizarre Scream parody because it's 1999 and Scream was successful two years ago. So we're going to have an opening beat with Bruce Campbell and some lady from, I think, Baywatch and they're going to get killed in an elevator before we pull out to reveal that it was all part of a movie. It's idiotic. Robert Patrick is the lead. He play, He's playing this wishy-washy character. His motives are unclear. It's not very good. And the, the acting is all decidedly below average. This is no one's career highlight. No one seems to care. Everyone seems to realise that they're in a bad movie that's just being made as a cash-in on the name. It's clearly done on the cheap, but I'm not going to hold that against it. The problems here are all narrative. They're not technical. The director, Scott Spiegel, he actually has kind of an interesting eye for shot composition, and it keeps the movie from being a total loss. But overall, it's, it's a hollow exercise size in mundanity. It's barely linked to the first movie. There's no point. Next I watched From Dusk Till Dawn 3, The Hangman's Daughter. 
who, which is directed by P.J. Pesh. It is, again, a direct-to-video movie. It's set in the early 1900s in Mexico. It is a prequel. It's about a group of disparate people, including a real-life historical figure that they drag in named Ambrose oh. Ambrose Bierce, who is played by Michael Parks, who played the marshal in the first movie. Uh, Ambrose Bierce was a... Well, I'll, I'll, actually, I'll, I'll say that for later. But it follows Ambrose Bierce, a bunch of other people, and the daughter of a local hangman, who is played by... Tamura Morrison, the hangman, a oh. conspicuously New Zealand Mexican hangman, <laughs> and his daughter is on the run from him. And all of these different characters converge at a mysterious bar in the middle of the desert, which is, of course, occupied by vampires. This is more like yes, it. It's, it's made immediately more interesting by the fact that it's a Western. The setting and all of the different related trappings are the cell. You've got good frontier outlaw stuff done on a budget. Wrapping in the real-life guy, Bierce, is a weird touch but it works with the film's much weirder tone this is the weirdest of the three movies Bierce was a American Civil War veteran who was in his 70s and he disappeared in Mexico after going to join Pancho Villa's uh, revolutionary army so this movie of course seems to posit that he encountered vampires Um, I think we all know what happened to this bloke. But it's interesting that, well, no one seems to know, but there is a decent amount of historical record and circumstantial evidence as to what actually happened to him, that the movie takes those elements and plays with them in a pretty interesting way to create a sense of dread and foreshadowing. The whole movie is just, of a, as I said, of a much weirder stripe. The vampires are bizarre and they have these weird powers that exist only to rattle, just like the first movie, but, like, much more extreme. There's this very strange prophecy element. You know, there's this there's this prophecy about the hangman's daughter. There are all these different visions that people are having, including Bierce. The hangman's daughter, Esmeralda, who's played by Ari uh, Celli, she's mysteriously linked to the vampires. That bit's pretty underdeveloped, but the, the mood is a good one. It tries to emulate the first one's genre twist, too. I mean, the game is up at this point, but it's appreciated that you start off with the western halfway through turning into a horror movie we spend a little bit too much time with the outlawed johnny madrid who's played by marco leonardi the element there they try to gin up some sort of romantic chemistry between him and esmeralda but that's kind of non-existent and their relationship isn't properly developed beers is the most interesting character he's having visions of his own death and he's a drunk and he finds himself traveling he's an atheist too and that is kind of fun because he finds himself traveling with these really aggressive obnoxious Christian missionaries who are trying to bring Catholicism to Mexico. And so he's this drunk, belligerent atheist who has no filter and tells them, like, all sorts of things. <laughs> that That's kind of an interesting thing. And then, of course, you know, once the vampires turn up, their faith becomes another thing. And it's a great dynamic. And Michael Parks is, is a hoot. He's got a great charisma and look to him. He holds the screen. He, he I don't know, he looks cool in all of the Western get-up, you know? It, he, he's a really it's a really fun performance it's got a muddled finale that never quite explains itself there's lots of loose ends and strange plot discrepancies it's rushed and boilerplate still looks cheap but the smart call that they've made with both of these movies is to hire directors with interesting visual styles scott spiegel did it in the second one and pesh keeps his setups interesting in this third one other than michael parks the actors are all average at best frequently below so but i'm never going to complain about tomorrow morrison either 
about tomorrow morrison turning up on screen even if he is not bothering in the slightest to hide his new zealand accent which makes him this very strange mexican hangman with a new zealand accent funny thing is there is a new zealand character in hateful eight so that that's kind of an interesting connection it's in it's a great improvement over the second film and it's an interesting take on the material that earns its right to exist Uh, it's cheap and it's rough but this one actually has ideas and all things considered it executes them pretty well that's Um, good anyways moving on i next watched bottle rocket which is a comedy film directed by wes anderson it's his debut film it's based on his short film of the same name it's about a trio of bickering friends who are all ranging from the naive to the dim-witted and they attempt to become professional thieves with mixed success this is the least wes anderson wes anderson movie it's it's co it's co-written by owen wilson that might be why it feels more awkward and it didn't really work for me as much as i wanted it to but technically it's brilliant it's not really a plot heavy movie it's more about exploring these three lost and confused young men you've got anthony who is played by luke wilson he's just out of a mental health hospital for depression bob who is played by robert musgrave he is a rich spineless kid who is constantly bullied by his brother and you've got dignan who's played by owen wilson he's a brash and impulsive idiot uh anthony has a nice arc where he falls in love with a hotel maid who doesn't speak english named inez she's played by lumi cavezos and that kind of starts off creepy because he starts following around her while following her around while she's doing the uh the housekeeping but it turns sweet because she's inexplicably into it uh and that gives him something beyond the codependent relationship with dignan bob is a third wheel both in the film itself and within the world of the film as well he's only there because he's the only one of them that has a car uh so they need him as a getaway driver bob has this vague thread about finding confidence but dignan who ranges from deeply annoying to kind of charmingly goofy mostly the former though stays the same from start to finish so what then is the point if only one third of the main characters do much of anything if anthony is the only one that really has anything to do and anything to say by the time the movie reaches its end this is interesting stuff though it's well written and it's acted in a style that definitely bears the marks of wes anderson the relationship dynamics keep the movie moving the the crime stuff is so much less interesting than the relationship stuff but the motive for all of the crime is never explained there's like they never even go into why they've decided to start robbing things but they're so comically inept that it never seems like a serious attempt it works best at the start where they where they do this really bumbling robbery of a bookstore but for the most part those moments just kill the pace and they let dignan take center stage to irritating effect the last sequence builds to some pretty bizarre chaos in the film's funniest moment though but overall i would have been happier frankly if we lost all of the crime stuff and just focused on the relation anderson's house style isn't in full force yet but you can see the shape of things to come the film language is not nearly as unique and meticulous as we've come to expect but the movie is recognizable as having his authorial stamp there's also a great use of licensed music which wes anderson is also known for um there's a a great scene that uses the proclaimers over and done with to great effect the actors are fine they all do pretty well um i mean it is it's it's the buddies it's these friends 
putting this movie together. Like, Wes Anderson, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, who is Owen Wilson's brother, obviously, and Robert Musgrave. Like, they were all friends. Uh, yeah, they grew up together, I Yeah, they all lived in the same apartment. Uh, and so... The same it, apartment building, not in the same apartment. No, the same apartment. Oh, I'm, I meant when they were growing up. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think Wes Anderson was part of it when they were growing up, but I think... No, I think he was. I think no, he grew he, up with Wilson. No, he and Owen Wilson met each other at a uh, at a screenwriting seminar. Oh, but, okay. uh, you know, it, it is sort of the whole band putting together this this film. And in that context, it is pretty impressive, especially as a first feature done on this this tiny bud. I will say that Luke Wilson is a better actor than Owen Wilson. Um, okay. I, I'm not sure exactly why, as a culture, we've all decided to just forget Luke Wilson. Um, I know he made my super ex-girlfriend, but that doesn't seem enough to drop him to the curb entirely. <laughs> um, uh, Owen Wilson, though, I would like to see him do more writing, quite frankly because yeah. the script in this even though it's not always on my wavelength it is pretty interesting um he did i think co-write rushmore as well and the royal tenenbaums and it was after that, that after that that he and that anderson started writing the scripts on his own yeah because um, he co-wrote these ones well uh but it's, it's an interesting first outing that ultimately hit a little wider the mark for me it's a little too aimless and twee without enough of anderson's confidence and personality yeah. that we get in the modern day i think that just comes from it being the first one yeah. I next watched The Late Shift, which is a drama based on a true story. It's directed by Betty Thomas. It was an HBO television movie. It's based on the book of the same name by Bill Carter. And it chronicles the true story of the intranetwork fracas that is kicked off after the retirement of Johnny Carson from The Tonight Show. And there's two competitors to replace him. You've got David Letterman, who's played by John Michael Higgins, uh, who people today probably know as the, the male commentator in the Pitch Perfect movies hmm. and Jay Leno who is played by Daniel Roebuck who people today probably know by seeing him get blown up suddenly by dynamite in the first season of Lost um, and the NBC executives at the time they plot to retain both of these guys they want to keep both of them on staff but Letterman is doing this later show uh, and he wants to move forward to The Tonight Show and Leno is the permanent um, substitute host for The Tonight Show and he wants the gig full time so the NBC execs they try to retain both of them but the situation quickly spins out of control into a pretty ugly public contract dispute this is a fascinating exploration of what is now a pretty legendary showbiz blow up it, it does yeah, a you've good... told us about this before yeah I mentioned it a few weeks back or a month or two ago it does a good job of chronicling the power moves and the back backstabbing in a way that milks the tension and the drama it really plays into all of that boardroom drama stuff uh which i really love um it's reasonably even-handed save perhaps for the nbc executives they don't come off that great but letterman and leno both come off as three-dimensional people uh there's no villain really even kathy bates who plays uh jay leno's foul mouth agent helen kushnick and is a very abrasive force within the within the movie even she gets a bit of sympathetic shading um her her real life was like super tragic just prior to this like you learn that her uh infant son was given a aids tainted blood transfusion at a hospital and that killed him then her husband Jesus. died of cancer then she got uh breast cancer and had to have a, mastect a mastectomy and then a few years after this she got breast cancer again and died like it's right yeah it's like when you're old that like it's hard to you know, hard to blame her. Hard to blame her. 
um, because she's fighting to get what she wants because she's lost a lot. Um, And that is that part of like the subtext of her character in the V. It becomes it becomes so towards the end. I would have appreciated them to uh, lean into that a little bit more. They they start to talk about that a little bit towards the very end, but they were they were also kind of in a tight spot at the time because she was suing the publisher of the book. Right. Um, Okay. So they didn't really want to go extracurricular and start doing things that would get them in trouble as well. Yeah. So so it was more like this is stuff that you knew that helped give. They they do mention it. They do mention it uh, in in there, but it's like just the one scene that they bring it up in. Yeah. But after you know that, it sort of colors the rest of her behavior. Yeah. Um, The movie assumes a vague familiarity with US late night. People who are unaware of the cultural importance of the Tonight Show probably won't understand who what the fuss is all about uh and they won't understand why letterman and leno are so desperate to get it especially considering letterman's already got his own show yeah it needed to layer that in a little more in the first third and i think you know it's it's working to fit a 90 minute time slot on hbo and i think you know you look at hbo movies today they would have been more comfortable stretching it out to two hours but not at this point the the scripting starts out pretty weak with some extremely wooden dialogue like it's trying to implement force in a lot of exposition in the early goings in a pretty wooden way but as as the drama intensifies and all of the machinations start that's when it finds its footing and that's when the writers clearly that's the material that they have a lot of interest in uh, they wanted to get to the juicy bits yeah the acting quality fluctuates wildly depending on the performer higgins as letterman is a really nice bit of casting but daniel roebuck's leno plays like an adam sandler impression it's it's he's got that kind of half lisping child voice that adam sandler does right. in like billy madison it's not great oh and it's made worse by some truly horrifying facial prosthetics that that make him look like one of alan cummings monsters in the spy kids movies uh, <laughs> jay leno has grounds for Fuglies. yeah jay leno has grounds for irritation <laughs> um let me just uh i will I, you can just cut out my humming and hiring here john but i'm trying to find the a photo so you can see the true horror of this that's probably the best Bloob is a madman help us save us Bloob is a madman help us save us that doesn't really look like jay leno that's that's not good um he kind of looks like he's he kind of looks like he's made of rubber um, yeah i can see that if you told me that that was, like, a bad wax sculpture of Jay Leno, or the guy who plays Ridge in Bold and the Beautiful, I'd agree with you. That just looks like, what if they got someone who was attempting to look like Jay Leno, but had him do that one pose from that Nicolas Cage movie? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um... that's not good. Kathy Bates, along with uh, Bob Balaban, Treat Williams, and Stephen Gilborn, are all scene stealers. Their characters are often more interesting than the two hosts. But I've got to give it. Of course, Kathy Bates is a scene stealer. Yeah, she she I think was nominated or or won an Emmy for this. Let me just double check that. I mean, she's great in everything. And this was like right after her big. Um, becoming a household name in the 90s yeah. that she she was nominated for an Emmy and she won a Golden Globe for this oh that's good um, but I also got to give a dishonourable mention to Peter Jurassic who is an actor that I generally like but uh, has a terrible British accent in this that rivals Keanu Reeves in Dracula oh really it's truly awful like they couldn't find an actual British guy <laughs> 
I don't know. It's yeah. But it's flawed, but it's highly engaging. And those interested in the material and the behind-the-scenes stuff of, of the show business, they'll find a lot to love. And for me, it was gripping. I actually think you guys would both get a lot out of it. It's available for, yeah. for streaming if you have a subscription to Foxtel Now or Binge. Have you heard of Binge? Yes, Foxtel's yes I've new, heard of Binge. I have Binge. New last gasp attempt at fighting their way into the streaming marketplace. They do not have enough exclusive content to make it worth it. At least not yet. yet. They're intending to have that be the home of HBO Max stuff in Australia. Mm. Uh, yeah, how long Snyder is cut. how long is AT&T going to let that happen though? How long, how many years before they say, alright, now let's just bring HBO Max proper Look, and honestly, cut out the middle rate, I'm waiting. At any rate, I can't wait for it. There's a two week trial, so we figured give it a whirl. And plus, Harley's not paying for it, so he loses nothing. Um, finally this week, I watched Executive Decision, which is an action thriller directed by Stuart Baird. If you recognise the name, you might recognise him as being a very accomplished uh, film editor and also for directing the controversial and much maligned Star Trek Nemesis, which killed his directing career a few years after this. It is about Islamic terrorists that hijack a passenger plane with the intention of detonating both it and a ton of nerve gas over Washington. Yikes! Uh, And a, a special ops team, including Steven Seagal and Kurt Russell, have four hours to use a super secret stealth jet to board the plane in flight and stop them. This is a dumb, high-octane 90s thriller. It's not one of the standouts of that genre, but it is very entertaining. It's totally a diehard ripoff. It's diehard in an aeroplane. It's crawling around in maintenance areas of a small contained space. Uh, The difference between this and something like Air Force One is that this plane is full of passengers who are all hostages. And so these agents, they can't leave the maintenance area and they can't um, make themselves known until they're ready to move and take the whole plane at once. Uh, But they've got to disarm the bomb first or the terrorists will set it off. It's a variety of bland and uninteresting characters, including, uh, stop me if you've heard this before, but the badass intellectual, who's played by Kurt Russell. The cowardly intellectual, who's played by Oliver Platt. The courageous stewardess, who's played by Halle Berry. The politically incorrect Muslim villain, who's played by the very British David Suchet. The hothead soldier, John Leguizamo. And Steven Seagal as how he wishes he was like in real life. <laughs> God, I hate Steven Seagal. Yeah. He sucks. I've never been able to, he just you know, sucks. deal with Seagal. He always seems way too wooden and up himself. Seagal, I think, I've been thinking a bit about this. What is the appeal of the man? And I think that he appeals to all of the flabby, middle-aged men who like to think that they could do that. Yeah, yeah. That he's, exactly. he's, he's you... without any remarkable characteristics. He's not yeah. buff like Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not charming like George Clooney or Sean Connery or any of the Bond actors, uh, he just no. Is... He's he's got he's also got none of the personality yeah. of say Stil- Sylvester Stallone or Schwarzenegger. or Schwarzenegger. Like I know that you n- are not the biggest Stallone fan, but you can at least appreciate oh, abs- that yeah. there's a star power. There. Oh yeah, there's more, far more there than Seagal has for sure. Seagal is just sort of like a guy with a you know a, a, a charisma black hole with a dad bod that wandered into a Hollywood film set and no one had the heart to ask him to leave um it just comes as it just comes off more greasy and weird he's yeah. also 
a proper piece of scum. Yep. So, you know. Um, as soon as you said Islamic terrorist, I was like, yikes. Yeah. Um, so they don't handle that well, do they? They don't have anything to say about it. They don't really go into it. It's like the fact that um, the the main bad guy is this very British white guy, you know, it's, it's all a little iffy and no one's got any um, real interest in thinking about this or thinking about how this representation might actually be coming off or anything like that. Uh, apparently it's... Is Kurt Russell at least good in this? He is. Um, but apparently they, they re-edited it, even though it was already out at this point for years, but they re-edited the home video releases post 9-11 to remove a whole bunch of shots of the bad guy like stroking the Quran and things like that, um, which is probably the right call. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but yeah, it ain't it ain't particularly politically correct. No one really stretches, no one really gets a chance to stretch their acting muscles, but everyone does what they're asked. It, it's largely predictable, but solidly so. It has a couple of neat tricks, including a pretty outstanding finale that they would never get away with in a million years now. Um, Stuart Baird's direction is, is pretty effective in staging tense sequences and keeping the suspense up, and it's assisted by a really good Jerry Goldsmith score. You've got a few really impressive special effects moments as well, including a really bombastic ending that, again, any studio would veto immediately if someone pitched it now. Uh, and ultimately, it's an effective, if predictable, 90s thriller with a couple of smart tricks nonetheless. In any case, that's me done for the week. Why Why don't we talk about what you guys have watched? All right, uh, I'll go first. Yeah. Uh, so we watched a movie that we've been very interested I've... to see for quite a while now. Because of watching the first film by this director. Uh, uh, and... Author in the making named Ari Aster. We you would know had... him as the director of Hereditary. We watched Midsommar. Uh, I quite liked Hereditary. I loved it, yeah. Uh, Hereditary was compelling, uh, gut-wrenching at times. Got a little really? silly near the end, but really, it, it came off as very interesting more than yeah. stupid. Uh, but I really, really liked Midsommar. Yeah. Perhaps a bit more than Hereditary. Right. Uh, because Hereditary, it was going with a lot of the same sort of techniques. Shadows, hiding stuff uh general horror based you know imagery yeah uh while midsummer focuses on the horror of the midday sun yeah and so midsummer is the story of a woman named danny played by florence her pew. i don't know how to say her I'm last not, name. pew what was it pew, pew. okay F- florence pew yes who's fantastic in this by the way and sounds almost identical to scarlett Johansson. Mm. uh and she goes to sweden with her boyfriend and his mates yeah Yes, uh, her boyfriend named Christian, played by Jack Rayner, who does a very brave thing in this movie. Yes, where do uh, I know? Where do I know Jack, the name Jack Rayner from? Where else has he been in? Oh, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. Uh, he was that's interesting. He was in Transformers: Age of Extinction. Yeah, that's not where Sanctuary I know. As statutory rapist, uh, he's just been in stuff eclectically. Yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. No, nothing starring. He was in Sing Street. He played Malcolm in Macbeth. Yeah. Oh, he was Malcolm. Yeah. He's played a bunch... He's been at a bunch of things just sort of all over the place. Yeah. So, they go to the uh, Christian's mate Pele's uh, home, where he In was... Sweden? Sweden. It's a commune uh, sort of setup. Cult! Yep. Uh, <laughs> and things start to fall apart. I, I have a... I'm a very anxious person, as I've expressed before in this podcast. So, Ari Aster has this skill at drawing out tension mm. that really gets to me. He did it in hereditary yeah. he did it expertly in this i saw 
saw Hereditary uh, in the cinemas, and it's really the only time in my adult life where I've actually gotten to a point. You, you probably would know it, the, where they go for a car ride. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and where there was a point after that scene where I just sort of was sitting there thinking, do I actually have to get up and leave the cinema? Can I actually get through the rest of this? Oh, um, yeah. He is very uh, effective great. at that kind of like just twisting the knife in your your yeah. emotions exactly. and in your anxiety. And basically, the beginning the, of the whole is that the whole beginning <laughs> sequence <laughs> is like if you got the vibes out of that, that sequence that, that from like when they get in the car minutes. to when they get home. That that oh, like great. I think seven or ten minutes of when he leaves the party yeah. all the way to when I don't know the screaming stops. I guess yeah yeah uh, it's. <laughs> The, the first uh, portion of the film is like that. Yeah, great. Got but that to look forward at the to. Top, oh, uh, no, it's it's uh, it's it's masterfully done. But the rest of the film is really focused on uh, the horror of. Uh, what Midsummer is Midsummer being the period in Sweden where uh, the days are longer. the days are much much longer. They have a thing called the Midnight Sun where uh, it doesn't go dark at night until very early in the morning, but it's only for a very short period that it's actually dark before the light comes back. I really like draws out. I really like shows that uh, movies and shows that that do that. Like those specific yeah. those specific places in the world that either have like constant darkness or constant daytime, like 30 days, yeah, uh, 30 days of night, 30 or days of night. Um, insomnia, the Christopher Nolan thing. Mm. So uh, it's th- fascinating. Very... You, I, I suppose that it's not until you experience it how that must just mess with your it internal does. clock. It does, yeah. It really does. Mm. And plus, they're also taking mushrooms. Yeah. So, which the entire thing is this mind-bending sort of very horrific uh, cult indoctrination sort of. Mm. And it, ah, uh, I don't know. Ari Aster just knows how to just make me happy. He's he's a like brilliant filmmaker. He, he does some harrowing things, but everything looks and clean. Everything looks so good. Everything just aesthetically is brilliant. Like, Even the most horrific things, it just looks like, great. You you can remember some of the editing tricks in Hereditary, where dream sequences in particular can be quite emotionally evocative, if not unrealistic. Yeah. They, there's a Ariasta has this brilliant eye. He has a brilliant. Uh, his scripts are never the tightest, but his storytelling is all yeah. so so good. And the music in the movie mm. is great, and there's a there's a trick with the music that I don't want to spoil that mm. you will notice. It is just so so brilliant, and the moment you notice it, you think to yourself, "Oh Christ! Oh shit!" Uh, it's a it's a daylight horror. Movie. It's a daylight horror. It, it really it's squeezes brilliant. the tension out of that. Also, mad props to William Jackson Harper, who Harley and I know as the character Cheedy in The Good Place. Yes. Uh, he Wait, plays an anthropologist play? in this, uh, and it's fantastic. He, he played Cheedy, and yeah, he was great. In that. Uh, and Will Poulter, Will Poulter, as a character <laughs> called Mark, he's the, he's the comedic relief. Uh, he's he's the, such an arsehole. Uh, out of it. all the Americans, he's the resident dick. Yeah. Uh, and he does it so, so well. Uh, it, I highly recommend Midsummer. When the cult gets freaky, they get freaky. They get freaky. It's like the worst the worst travel like <laughs> ad for Sweden ever. And apparently the Swedish audience is 
just thought it was hilarious. Oh, yeah. When Midsummer went to Sweden, uh, a lot of Swedish people were like, oh, yeah, it's a fantastic black comedy. And everyone else in the world just shook their heads, sighed, and were like, Jesus Christ, Sweden. It's like, man, you Swedes are messed dark. up. Man, you Swedes are a dog. But people. yeah, I loved Midsummer. It hit every single note that I wanted it yeah. to. I If... If Ari Aster is a one-trick pony, God bless him for it's picking the great... best trick. Yeah, if if he's a one-trick pony, it's a great trick. Weird pagan cults and harrowing grief and family are drama his too. Thing. This is this is his wheelhouse, and he does it so well. He does it it's so a well. Fantastic companion piece to Hereditary. Can't wait to see what he does next. Oh yeah, definitely. He's he's an author that I will be watching mm. with great interest. He John. he is um. He hasn't actually got a, a another directing gig lined up yet, but he is producing, I think, a, if I can just find this, English language adaptation of a bizarre, uh, yes, a bizarre Korean movie called Save the Green Planet, which, let's find this here. Right, this is the plot of the original Korean movie. Lee Byung-gu is convinced that there are aliens from Andromeda among us plotting to destroy Earth. He believes that Kang Man-sheik, the head of a chemical production company, is their leader and kidnaps him. Holding him in his secret lair, Byong-gu interrogates and tortures the supposed alien, hoping that he will confess to his crimes against humanity and call off the planned destruction of the planet before it is too late. So he's producing an, Eng- he's producing an English language adaptation of that and they've also got, apparently, um, one of the producers of um, of Parasite on board as well. Nice! This could be good. Imagine getting Bung Joon ho <laughs> and this guy in a room together. Imagine Bung, jo- Bung Joon-ho ru- directing a movie written by Ari Aster. Hell yes. <laughs> I would love to and I like full disclosure if this is the actual twist I don't know that. I'm full, I'm just speculating I don't know anything right about on. this movie beyond I just what I just said but uh, I I think that's great if like they get to the end and it actually is an alien. <laughs> like the whole earth gets destroyed or something. That would be so good. Yeah. So I hope. Uh, the other thing we watched is quite quite, quite different. different. Uh, because we've got Disney Plus we decided to watch all of the Spark shorts, which are a group of short films uh, produced by Pixar, where Pixar employees have been given six months and a limited budget to develop a short film about a topic that interests them. So they are in backwards in, I guess, I'll just go by release order, Loop, Win, Float, Kitball, Smash and Grab, Pearl, and Out. Out being the most recent one. So I'll go in order about, like, a small synopsis and what I think of, or what we think. Loop. Loop is about a, a, yeah. Adrift on a lake, two kids with different ways of communicating attempt to connect. Now, it's a story about a young girl who has autism and she's nonverbal. So she's got difficulty communicating. And I showed this uh, short film to my mum, who has worked with a lot of children with autism, varying levels, and also my sister, who her job is to work with people with disabilities. And my mum cried watching it. It captures it so perfectly, and it's so touching. The animation is absolutely fantastic. The audio editing is top-notch because of how I'm sure you can agree that with when someone has autism, sound is a very big 
thing. At, at least for me, it is. Like I can get overwhelmed the, the, easily, yeah, the, the and sensory I'm very particular. I'm, and I'm very particular with sound. Like there are some noises that I just can't deal with, like the sound of eating and stuff. And this short film captures it and in as a very you've, beautiful way. And as you've come to expect, the animation, animation quality is, gorgeous. is just gorgeous. And each of these, or well, not each of these, like two of them are similar animation styles, but all of them have their own cool visual length. Yeah, because it's like, all it's all different people. Yeah. Uh, Win is the story of a grandmother and a boy who is who seek to escape a deep, endless chasm that they live in. And again, it's a fantastic story. It is based on the director's... The story of uh, the director Edwin Chang's grandmother and about how... And the sacrifices she made to, to help her family immigrate to America. And it's very touching and very well done. Very creative in terms mm. of the imagery and the idea of when you're immigrating to somewhere, you're sort of floating in stasis. And that's the kind of world that this grandmother and child live in. And it's very touching. Float is the first one of these that I watched. Um, it follows a father... Okay, in Float, a father discovers that his son is different from other kids in the most unusual way. To keep them both safe from judgment, his dad covers him and keeps him out of sight. When his son's ability becomes public, the dad must decide whether to run and hide or accept his son as he is. The kid can float. The kid can float. <laughs> so I... I, I th- think that's a... I think they're using float as a metaphor for say, a particularly gifted child or just different. Or, or different in any kind of way. It, it's this never really specific. This one's the least specific out of the lot. Well, other still, than smash and grab. But still very very evocative. Very evocative again, the animation is fantastic. You can really see there's a particular eye for storytelling from these directors and they all touch on really personal things for them. Um, The next one is Kitball. It's the story of a very adorable uh, hand-drawn kitten. Like, this is a 2D animation. Uh, a kitten and a pitbull spark a unique friendship. There's a specific moment in this that I don't want to spoil, that where Harley and I both went, oh, oh no. god, oh shit. It, it really hits you hard if you can, uh, like, pick up if the, you put the pieces. If together. you put the pieces together. Um, it's very, very well done. The animation is like almost this sort of cat scratch funnily enough it's and the the process because pixar is used to creating cartoons in cg animation cg cg animation they're used to 3d spaces 3d models and stuff so they had to sort of uh work backwards sort of backwards engineer their way to doing 2d animation so they which is fascinating process the making of behind this one is particularly interesting yeah it's fantastic uh, the next one is Smash and Grab, which follows two really adorable robots called Smash and Grab, who risk everything for freedom and for each other. Uh, the story of this one is fantastic. It's got a lot of really cool physical comedy, and in the behind the scenes you see that they actually had actors in mocap suits acting out the things, and it really shows the characters are so animated and have so much life to them. Mm. And it also has a vaguely... Uh, 
vaguely like like eat the rich vibes. Eat the rich, eat the rich vibes. Sort of, just a little. Bit. Like honestly, if one of them like put up a flag and it had the hammer and sickle on it, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been be surprised. I wouldn't have been surprised. It's a very like pro worker. It also vibe. It, it also has this uh sort of uh Atlas shrugged sort of uh design to it. Everything is this really interesting. You know the movie Metropolis. Yeah. It's yeah. Got it's, that energy. it's like sort of that energy, but crossed with Wally. Okay. It's like it's very interesting and very well done. Uh, they did not touch on the anti-capitalist stuff in the making of. No. Which would have been bite. Which would have been biting the hand that feeds them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's very well done. Uh, I'm a particular fan of Rab, the, mm. the robot. He's just adorable yeah. and and just had. He's got shit aim. He's just got really bad <laughs> aim, and like I I I love the energy. Uh, the next one is called Pearl. It follows a anthropomorphic ball of string called Pearl. Yarn. A yarn or whatever. Uh, who gets a job at a startup and must decide how far she's willing to go to be accepted. Obvious, like, metaphor here about women in the workplace and wanting to be accepted and maybe changing things about their personalities to fit in. Yeah, it it, it is uh, about the director's experience getting into animation in the first place. As a woman, yeah. Uh, as a woman. And it also reflects the anxieties of being either female or female-presenting and going into male-dominated spaces. Yeah. Uh, the way they function, the, they talk about the whole business thing, is it's they just... never specify what work actually gets done at the company. It's just business. Because the director in the behind-the-scenes said, I don't know anything about business, so why would I even pretend? Really, all we know about business from the movie is, uh, fuck the fuck guys from finance. <laughs> uh... We yeah. tell jokes at the water cooler. And we go and, and we eat go, wings. And we go out for wings at the end of the day. <laughs> and that's basically... It, it's very well done. The animation is fantastic. Yeah. And I, I, I actually figured out a joke um, while we were watching it because of the obvious joke thing and because jokes are made about, you know, balls of wool and everything. Mm. What did the ball of wool say when the needle had a point? Ah, crochet. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't written. work written. That's that's a joke that has to actually be said out loud. Yeah. Um, but Pearl, very great job. Very good animation. Like you can see all of the textures mm. on the on Pearl yeah. and on the other balls of wool. And and the people characters have sort of that incredible design to them. to them. So it's this really good uh, difference between the two styles, mm. and it, it works very well. Uh, the third, the sorry, not the third, the final. Uh, Spark short that yes. has been released and that we watched is called Out, and it follows uh, a man called Greg who is trying to get to being comfortable to come out to his uh, parents uh, that he's gay, and he is getting watched by these two like I don't know I, I this guess cosmic cat and dog cosmic cat and dog who I think are personifications of queerness I mm. think because they are like purple and pink and those are like big colors for the LGBTQIA community. But they also arrive on a rainbow. And they also arrive on a rainbow. 
know. So uh, that's quite blunt. So, you know. Uh, so they essentially make it so that uh, Greg gets put into the body of his dog, and the dog gets put into his body, so they switch <laughs> uh, sort of personalities. And the animation uh, is so and brilliant about how the dog is- moves when he's taking c- taking control of Greg's body. Mm. And essentially, the whole <laughs> meaning of it is... Uh, in this sort of situation, Greg feels as though uh, he's unable to control himself. He he can't. He's he gets frustrated. He 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 gets, snaps at he snaps at people when he, people get too close to uh, figuring it out. And it's a really heartfelt story, if a little bit uh, saccharine. It might be a little too funny for its own good, uh, maybe because it, the, there's a part in it where the dog when the when the dog is taking control over Greg's body, he just runs into. The the distance <laughs> and, and in bolt, this really really bolt. funny animated way and i was just sitting there thinking well he's not coming back i'm just sitting there going he's gone man he's booking it he's booking it uh but yeah it's very well done mm. the animation on that one is incredible it's in a it's in a very unique style that i appreciate a lot all of the spark shorts they're really short they're really short films like mm. maxing it around eight minutes and i really appreciate that this is a thing that pixar and Disney have decided to do because not only does it help get these more socially conscious and social justice minded stories out there but they also allow storytellers from their company who otherwise wouldn't be trusted with say a giant multi-million dollar movie and allows for more different styles to be brought into it it really lets the animators flex their creative muscles exactly and it helps show that Pixar are pretty much untouched when it comes to animation and the creativity of the people work there. Oh, definitely. And you can find all of these on Disney+, Plus, and I believe some of the earlier ones were released on YouTube before Disney+, Plus came out. So, now we're going to get into our deep dive, but first we're going to play some audio of the trailer. For Primal Fear. On my first day of law school, my professor says, from this day forward, when your mother says she loves you, get a second opinion. In the game called Fame. You are a master at putting the victim on trial. A victim in this case is my client. In the business called Justice. First thing I ask a new client is, so you've been saving up for a rainy day? Guess what? It's rainy. The victim in this case is not only the Archbishop, it's also the people of Chicago. Excuse me. Hello, this is Martin Vale. You got the news on by any chance? I think everyone's gonna want this one. There's one lawyer they love to hate. Sell the book rights yet, or are you gonna wait a while? Now tell me, counselor, which one of us is the true headline chaser here? Unlike you, I was assigned to this case. You know who I am? No, sir, I don't. Don't you read the papers? Richard Gere. I speak, you do not speak. Your job is just to sit there and look innocent. Well, I am innocent. That's it. That's exactly how I want you to look. Can you remember that? Look in the mirror if you have to. Even when the headline is murder. There was someone else in that room. It was the third person? <laughs> That's the worst story I've ever heard in my entire life. Now it's our story. He's the one. You want to go one-on-one with me? I don't lose. What's the matter, Marty? Been a while since you rubbed up against a woman with a brain? Who's the real story? Come on, ask it. What about the truth? The illusion of truth. But he did kill him, right? No, he didn't. Don't tell me you think he didn't do it. So how are you going to get him off? I don't know. What do you think he's up to? I honestly don't know. 
I saw the tape. I know what he did to you. Do you know what I would do if someone did that to me? I would stab him 78 times. It's a mistake to stick your thumb in the eyes of the most powerful people in the city. You're worse than the thugs you represent. Objection, Your Honor. Next thing you know, he'll be objecting if we want to bring in the murder weapon. Well, now the chief brings it up. You're on dangerous ground here. Yep. If you punch any of this, I'll see your ass. Primal Fear. This is a cover story, right? Yeah. That was the trailer for Primal Fear. It is a legal drama directed by Gregory Hoblet. It's based on the book of the same name by William Deal. It's about a hotshot criminal defense attorney named Martin Vale. He's played by Richard Gere. And he takes the cha- t- and he takes the case of a shy altar boy named Aaron Stampler, who's played by Edward Norton. He's accused of murdering the popular Archbishop Chicago in what initially appears to be an open and shut case, but quickly becomes far more complicated. So so why don't we all just go around to start off with by saying what we all thought about this movie. And and just to start us off, Harley and I, um, no, Harley, you have you have seen this movie before, but for John and I, it yep. was our first time watching this movie. So we're coming in fresh. So what did you think, John? I enjoyed it. It very much, it felt like a really taut legal thriller. Some of the, I like how plot points came in and sort of obfuscated real intentions of, the killer um it very it did a very good job and making things seem bigger than they actually were and i enjoyed that i liked edward norton in this film although having known the twist prior to watching it it's very obvious um the score by james newton howard is quite interesting and uses a lot of uh fretless bass which i appreciate i love the sound of that and i mean richard gears the man uh so for me uh i had seen the back half of this film years ago. Uh, I hadn't watched the full thing. Uh, I was sick one day from school, uh, just, you know, channel surfing, and came across a movie with Richard Gere, Edward Norton. I was like, I'm a fan of Edward Norton. I recognize stuff. So I watched the back end of it, and uh, I got so enraptured by it that when I got the next chance, uh, I bought a DVD copy of it. Uh, and watched it a couple of times since then. Uh, but watching it again, it's such a good. I love legal drama. We've touched on legal dramas before. Uh, we've also like touched, Streets of Philadelphia. Yeah, we've yeah. we've also touched on uh crime dramas, Silence of the Lambs, Silence of the Lambs, that sort of thing. And the melding of the two was great for me. Yeah, like, it, I loved it, it. It feels like Richard Gere's character thinks that he's in Streets of Philadelphia, but he's actually in Silence it's of the Lambs. It's just called yeah. Philadelphia. Streets of Philadelphia yeah. is the name of the song. Sorry, that just keeps popping into my mind. Uh, and no, I loved it. It's it's great performances all around. Uh, it's a bit dry, yeah, stylistically speaking, but I think that's the point. Uh, it's not as crazy as something like Seven. <laughs> Mad props to Andre uh, Grauer. But uh, it's, it's it's a great film. Loved it. What about you? I I think this is a really twisty, spellbinding thriller with a twist up its sleeve that is now legendary. Uh, it's it's got masterful performances. 
really smart writing. It's incredible that this was Edward Norton's first film role. Um, this made his career. It did. Uh, it's a great potboiler legal drama with these these really two remarkable star performances at the center and a and a really roller coaster like pace to it. It just never stops. There's always that neck that next turn to come, and I think very very effective in. So to start off with, uh, the moment the first time I watched it, I didn't realize how political it was. Well, actually, uh, before we go there, do you want to just get the the Roy yeah, Aaron of it all right. out of the way, considering that's pretty much yeah. the the foundation of the discussion of everything else in the movie? Yeah, fair. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Having seen it before, I knew the twist. Yeah. Uh, John had I John think Holly the told me at one yeah. point, but I uh, had forgotten details. Uh, had you known the twist before you went in? I did. I I knew it was coming. It's it's sort of become kind of a legendary twist. Um, you know, they turn up on those top ten twists of all time kind of lists. Uh, and for, Norton if, tends yeah. to do the uh, playing double thing. Yeah. For anyone who's listening and has not seen the movie, uh, basically over the course of the film, we learned that Edward Norton's character Aaron has multi personality disorder and or dissociative identity disorder as it's called and he has a much more aggressive alternate personality called Roy who resurfaces during moments of conflict and the to protect him to protect him and the priest that has been murdered was abusive in ways that we will probably get into but yeah. uh, Roy surfaced killed the priest to protect Aaron and now Aaron's sort of on the hook for it uh, Richard Gere fights very hard to get Aaron off um, and he he does he manages to get Aaron sentenced to a, a psychiatric treatment at an asylum rather than the death sentence which is what the prosecution was going uh, only to at the very and realize some inconsistencies in Aaron's story and realized that there never was a dissociative identity disorder. Um, it was a fake the whole time that he was fully aware of what he was doing when he killed the Archbishop. And it, he, he has one of the... It also implies he's killed someone else as well. Yes, that he no, has... he, sta- he states he that he killed he, him. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's also killed someone else. Um, and that it has one of the great chilling lines uh, in legal dramas I think in thrillers where uh, Richard Gere says so there never was a Roy and uh, Edward Norton says no counsellor there never was an Aaron (laughs) what did you just say what you told me you don't remember you black out so how do you know about her neck Good for you, Marty. I was going to let it go. You was looking so happy just now, I was thinking, mm-hmm. but to tell you the truth, I'm glad you figured it. Because I have been dying to tell you. <laughs> I just didn't know who you'd want to hear it from, you know? I mean, Aaron or Roy or Roy or Aaron. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. Sort of a client, attorney privilege type of a secret, you know what I mean? It don't matter who you hear it from. It's the same story. <laughs> I, uh, I just, just, just had to kill Linda, Mr. Vale. That, that just got what she deserved. But 
cutting up that son of a bitch Rushman. That was just a fucking work of art. <laughs> You're good. You are really good. Yeah, I did get caught though, didn't I? Mm. So there never, there never was a Roy. Jesus Christ, Marty, if that's what you think, I am disappointed in you. I don't mind telling you. There never was an Aaron counselor. Um, so that's it, it's impossible to really discuss this movie without that context because everything is predicated on the fact that it's all a lie. Yeah. Uh, you can't really discuss the case at the center of it. You can't really discuss Edward Norton's character without discussing that. And I love how filled with glee Edward Norton is at the chance yeah. that he gets the chance to reveal this. It's all worked out so brilliantly. Isn't this great? And yeah. how <laughs> savage an ending it is to just have Richard Norton that final shot of him Edward sort of standing uh, you, you uh, Richard, Richard Gere, Gere sorry Richard Gere of have him just that final shot of him just standing <laughs> in the middle of the road looking shell-shocked as you cut to black and then it cuts to black and that, that song that song starts I forget what it's called the the Oh, what's it called? Let me find that. But um, the way that's sort of very... It's a cover, isn't it? Of a, of a song we heard earlier in the movie. That's a darker cover. I don't know. Sure. Um, I didn't recognise the song. I think, I think it's Don't Deceive Me, Please Don't Go. <laughs> which would be... Um, yeah, that's not a cover of something I've heard earlier. But yeah. it's it's such I mean, it's a well-executed thing. Yeah. yeah. Like, the entire movie is about, like, not thinking that you know someone. And, like, trying not to get too invested in you your perception of a person yeah. like when you first meet joey you think oh this guy's probably a criminal a gang- and gangster and all of this stuff but he's actually really trying to help his community and is very nice to marty like i love the, the it's the little detail of him just going out of how marty says oh i like this is a nice sounding song and he just goes and he gives and joey just gives him the cd and he says uh the track you want the track you for one is it's like it's track four it's a good cut and I'm like, that's so sweet. Yeah. Like, it's a very n- nice little detail that shows that all of these characters do have a... They've got another face, to put it in a way mm. that is put later in the movie. Every Everyone is two-faced in a way. Yeah. Everyone has their own motivations for things. And... Even, even Martin, at the centre of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That he is this kind of... The public perception of him is, is as of this, like, the worst of the worst kind of lawyer. This, this hot... Yeah. Shot criminal defense attorney who comes in and defends guilty people and uh, gets them off charges because it gives him prestige and money. Um, yeah. But the underlying thing there, if you dig a little under the skin, he's actually this closet idealist. He he believes very firmly. We learn in a in a pretty stress stressful point of the of the movie for him that the reason he's doing this is because he was so uh disillusioned by the process of prosecuting people and the way that the, the grotty underbelly of that that he he believes that regardless of whether people are he really believes in the idea that people are guilty until proven innocent that regardless of whether in, they are guilty or not guilty um, yeah sorry um that regardless of whether they are guilty or not they deserve also the best defense 
and the best advocate. Yeah. And that's what he has turned his entire career into, even at the cost and of God, his personal life. And by God, they twist life. the knife into him. Mm. And, they twist the knife into him at the end. And it also shows that he's well aware of the bullshit that the prosecutor's office was getting up to. Yeah. Uh, preferential treatment. Uh, and he talks early in the movie about leaving the prosecutor's office, about having a great shame why he had to leave 15 years ago. Yeah, there's, a, there's an they... implication that is never made explicit that he mm. was coerced when he worked for the prosecutor's office into doing something illegal, if not uh, bordering on the illegal, if not fully illegal, that yeah. caused the wrongful conviction of someone. Uh, I thought it was implied that it was uh, helping cover up the sexual Watch, abuse yeah. of the person he was talking about in court. Because oh, that's an interesting reading. I never, yeah, that didn't, because, didn't click over me. Because he, he, he says, uh, what year is this set? 96, I think. 96. So around that point time would have been 1985 when he left the prosecutor's office so at that point right was the case where someone who was someone accused the archbishop someone accused the archbishop of sexual misconduct and then the prosecutor's office didn't chase up on that yeah they They shut it it down they shut that down and it's implied that the only reason that marty knew about that and the reason the judge says that marty was doing that for himself was because that was the great shame that was the great cover-up I, I hadn't considered that. That's actually really interesting. Because so, it does kind of come out of nowhere that he has yeah. that information in court all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. And that's why he takes this case, because that monster was just murdered by a young altar boy. Uh, okay. Does that track? Because he actually also kind of... He, he seems surprised when the video abuse part of it comes up. No, yeah, he's he, surprised that it's actually true and that he did right, the wrong thing. Yeah. But then if he thought it... If he, if, he has, he, if he didn't think he did the wrong thing, before that, then why no, no, did he no. leave the prosecutor's office? He knows what he did was wrong, not having it tried. Mm. But he didn't know that what was alleged actually happened. The illegal but now thing that he was... has proof of it possibly yeah. happening, that's illegal... what really messes yeah. him up. Like, the illegal thing in his eyes was not having it looked into properly and just burying it completely. That's an interesting read, yeah. I'm not sure, like, yeah. I think we're reading in a, a lot around the edges there, but mm. I, I do like but, that I mean, if any Thing, I'll trust the person who's watched it three times. Yeah. And with um and there's the constant uh at the beginning of the film, Marty is talking to Andre Brower's character, the private investigator, about <laughs> Who is great. Who is great, by the way. Uh who and he's just like, Oh, so that you're uh, uh defending that kid who killed Archbishop. And then Marty's like, allegedly. allegedly. You really gotta have to start putting word but allegedly, allegedly into your vocabulary. vocabulary. Then that comes back later on where he's <laughs> called as a witness. It's like, so you've been to her apartment, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> then Marty's just like, oh, God. It, that I was think, the wrong time. I think Andre Brower's performance in this movie really shows that he should have been in comedies far sooner than Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Because his entire bit on the stand's a total shit show. I love it. But it's so good. Uh, I, I like courtroom dramas, uh, especially ones where both lawyers are tr- just trying trying to do what they consider to be the right thing. And it gives us a fair look at both. And and this is one of those films. It's not sort of a friendly rivalry like in A Few Good Men. It's more... Uh, between Cruz and Bacon. This is more of like a... Ve- Martin and Janet yeah. have a really yeah. interesting kind of... They've got a history. I see. That when Martin, when Martin worked at the prosecutor's office, she was his second chair. And they had 
a romantic relationship um, and that all fell apart once he decided to leave. And so they've got all of this unresolved sexual tension that permeates the movie and they keep trying and to manipulate just, each other. Yeah, I was getting a bit uncomfortable with some of the tension, dude. I'm just like, I, I loved oh, the scene man. where he, where Martin found the tape and we'll go into the tape a little later and was like, this gives Aaron motive. Why would I give it to you? This gives Aaron motive, but it also like, shows a trauma that could cause a split. So... Not only that, it also shows what Martin's trying to prove. Well, no, because she she doesn't know about the multiple personality thing at that point. Her whole thing is yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, is that she... It's going to like be a huge uh, black eye to the city, basically. And her, mm. her yeah, boss, Ma- Fraser's dad, is trying to, <laughs> trying to shut that yeah. down. And she also makes some comment that by bringing it all... By her being the one to introduce it... Uh, that the jury will sort of turn on her for dragging the whole thing down into the gutter, which yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think it's interesting how Martin and... Uh, Fraser's dad. No, Goodman, Andre Brower's character. Like, I love the moment when Martin has the idea, and you can see on Andre Brower's face how he just leans back and is like, <laughs> oh, okay, okay, I see what you're doing. Like, it's a really clever move, and gets him a, a contempt fine. <laughs> Uh, which is hilarious. Uh, well, that's not what gets in the contempt. That's it's no, part of contempt it. It's part he of it. Has a go at Shaughnessy. No, no, it's set. also part of it. Mm. Uh, and uh, the tape is of the Archbishop uh, first doing a sermon about purging sin and then uh, getting Aaron, one of the other altar boys, Alex, I think it was, and a young woman. Aaron's girlfriend, Linda. Linda. I can assume that girlfriend was a. Uh, Aaron's girlfriend. In quotation, in, in quotation marks. marks. Uh, as the movie puts it, doing sex stuff. <laughs> uh, and yeah. direction. He's doing this of, weird. Uh, creepy porno director thing um in what and appears I- to be like the the seminary library yeah and uh, and uh aaron says something like uh there was no other way for him to purchase sin yeah which is yeah. when, Sorry, when you consider that this that's is not sin when you consider that no, this is 96 that this movie comes out and that the book is out earlier than that um the church stuff seems pretty prescient considering what yes. we now learn about the catholic church i think what was it 2004 that all that that the the spotlight stuff started to come out but mm. it's it, and it is part of like the thesis of the movie i suppose is that richard gear as an idealist is sort of faced with all of this corruption on every level of the system that there's corruption in the justice system that there's corruption here in, in organized religion and that he is sort of trying to fight back against the, the tide and then the, at the very end he is kind of corrupted himself inadvertently by uh defending this killer successfully yeah mm. it's all about kind of it, it has kind of a weird connection to seven in that way where it's kind of a nihilistic movie that it's about a, an idealistic person ha- really having it beaten out of him by reality <laughs> yeah and the yeah i love the little details that edward norton puts in the character of aaron he's got a fantastic kentucky accent by how the way. apparently according to the behind the scene blu-ray it was edward norton's idea Idea for the stutter. Uh, when Roy shoves a Marty against the prison cell wall, Norton ad-libbed that. Yeah, that wasn't scripted. Gear didn't and, know that was coming. And the slow clap at the end was also ad-libbed. <laughs> well, a lot of the the ending conversation um, 
that was originally much, much longer. There was yeah. pages and pages of it. And when they got to filming it, it all just, it was like a dead weight and it didn't have the impact that they wanted. So they just spent the whole morning, basically, the writers, uh, Richard Gere and Edward Norton, just sitting together, workshopping it and paring it down. And to the yeah. point where, like, when Norton goes up to the bars at the end and starts shouting after him, that's all ad lib. That's all Norton. <laughs> um, I love oh, how he so yells good. out, uh, this is going to toughen you up, Marty. This, yeah, this is going to toughen you up. You, well, you're never going to get tricked again. Well, let's talk about that scene where he first, Roy, quote unquote, first reveals himself. Um, that That is kind of the, the point where the whole movie sort of turns and becomes a little bit more complicated and uh, pulpy, I suppose. And it is a great performance by Edward Norton. I mean, Edward Norton's a known quantity now and he's played a lot of different types of characters. So it's less of like a true shock. But you've got to remember also that Edward Norton at this point, this was his first film role. He was largely a theatre actor prior to that. And so when he he he's standing there sort of with his hands up against the wall, you know, freaking out, and then he rears around the turn, Roy comes out and he gets gets very confident and aggressive. I think it's a benefit to the movie that at the time you have an actor with no baggage that, I mean, yeah. one of the things was um, Leonardo DiCaprio was offered the role and he turned it down. Uh, and I think yeah. it's actually really good for the movie that he did, not just because it gave Edward Norton a career and we can thank it for that, but yeah. DiCaprio brings too much baggage and he'd already played, if I'm not mistaken, a few different characters that had kind of a darker edge to them by that point but having yeah. having norton having your first introduction to norton be through this character allows that kind of of innocent country boy act that he's doing at the beginning to i mean it's believable he sells it yeah it's and you relax into it because you have no preconceptions and so when he does the turn that's that's equally believable also which make yeah. then and makes then the final turns, turn yeah there was actually originally i think this was in the book as well but they cut it for the movie even after they filmed it there was this whole side sequence where Gear visited um, Aaron's hometown and interviewed a whole bunch of people, including like his teacher and things like that. Yeah. But uh, by the time they put that in the film, it just telegraphed it too much. It was yeah. it, it put too much um, information out there that would potentially let the audience click into it before it, they were supposed to. Because you are supposed to you are supposed to get it just a fraction of a second before Vale does. Yeah. Like, just mm. before he stops in the hallway, that's when you're supposed to get it. But you know that Roy had an out there. He did have an out. He, he could have just said, said, oh, they told oh, me they, what happened. They, they, they told me about what happened. Well, well no, because yeah. he had already at the start of the scene pretended not to know about anything. Remember when Gear first mm. walks mm. in? and Yeah. Um, so he didn't really have that out. But then there's also that, you know, like, he's such a, a he's a smart guy and he's a he's a cunning and crafty guy. Do, you, do we really think that he accidentally let that slip or is he nah, is he just gloating is he just I think he wanted him to if he picked up on it, fantastic. I guess if he gloat. didn't, then if I've he had didn't, on him. then I've completely fooled him. I think he wants. He, he, he does say later in the scene, "You have no idea how long I've been wanting to tell you this. I've been wanting to show you what's actually been happening." Your your southern accent is flawless, so John. <laughs> um, I wasn't trying. Um, well, Harley's one's better. Well, what I was I going to say? Uh, the Will Wheaton was also offered the role of mm. this, and he's regret turning yes. it down ever since he 
I'm just going to quote from the Wikipedia, not the Wikipedia, the IMDb trivia item on this. Wheaton turned down the role because he did not want to put off his acting school. And when his manager urged him to take the role anyway, he told him, quote, It is like Luke Skywalker when Yoda told him not to go and save his friends, but to stay on Dagobah and learn to be a Jedi instead. Luke didn't listen to him, and that's why he never became a true Jedi Master, end quote. So later Wheaton regretted turning this role down, saying that this was a crucial factor why his career never got to be a successful one. Also potentially a crucial factor, saying stuff like that to your manager when they <laughs> when they give you career <laughs> advice. Um, yeah, that's... it's not like it's their job or something. And let's be honest here, like, Will Wheaton wouldn't have worked no. in the same way. I, I think we can agree he's not as good as Edward Norton. Mm. But Edward Norton was Apparently. nominated. He, Edward Norton, this is his first role. He wins the Golden Globe for this. He's nominated for an Academy Award for this and by all accounts becomes very, very close to winning. There's a lot of people who seem to think, and obviously there's no way to test it because they don't actually release the voting numbers, but it generally seems I to be agreed upon in the Hollywood system that he was pretty much the runner-up, that uh, that was that he came very close to winning there. And, Who did win that year? Um, I'll just look that up. But they also had a bit on the, the special features of it where they're talking about his audition tape and that like the moment that's, that got recorded, that it got leaked and all of a sudden it was all over town and he got roles based on that. Like that's the reason he had uh, The People versus Larry Flint the next year is because they saw his audition tape and he got cast before the movie had ever come out just oh, on wow. the strength of that audition tape. Um, but he was he was nominated alongside James Woods for Ghosts of the Mississippi, Armin Mueller-Style in Shine, William H. Macy in Fargo and the winner was Cuba Gooding Jr. for Jerry Maguire. And given the, the trajectory of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s career pretty much immediately following that, I think that Edward Norton probably should have won. Yeah. Uh, so other people who could have ended up in the role, Matt Damon had audition for it. Wouldn't have worked, I don't think. Uh, no. Uh, another one uh, which would have been bad, Eddie Furlong. Oh, Christ. I think he could have done okay. Um, another one, James Marsden. Yeah? Oh, boy, I could Teddy. see James Marsden. Uh, Are we a pro James Marsden podcast? Yep, I why think not? he's a great actor. Yep, cool. Okay. Uh, so, more um, Lenny's another, good in this. Another big sort of element of the film is the poverty gap. Yes. Because, you know, the moment the film says the words, the Archbishop's Mansion. Oh, that made my skin uh, fall. And we see, see within Chicago, the massive gap between the, the wealthy elites and the poor. That becomes sort of the initial center of Marty's, you know, investigation yeah. into it. He believes it's a political hit. And it's how the Archbishop preys on people. He picks yeah. up people off of the street who have nowhere else to go, who have no homes, who have no families, who have no opportunities. And it's how he gets them to do these things, yeah. is by uh, giving them the opportunity of shelter, or of food, of a place to sleep. And as a result of all that, you've also got to do this, which is his weird onside, yeah. mm. you know, perversion thing. The movie does have a lot to say a about hobby. a lot of different things. Mm. It's, Being it, a perv isn't his full-time job, it's a hobby. It's... Um, but it's, it's, the movie has a lot of, a lot of things to say about a whole lot of different things. About yeah. re- organised religion, about institutions, about the justice system, about uh, the poverty gap, wage gap. Um, do you guys have anything else to say about that? Or I think I, I did love 
And I have to say again, I loved how Marty tried to basically activate a trap card and send the prosecutors to the Shadow Realm by using the tape. I thought that that was very, very well done. It was clever. clever it, was a, it was a clever play by him, and I think he knew that Janet would pick up on that. Yeah. Uh, Janet... Because he, like, double bluffed her. Janet in this, by the way, I got mad Evan Rachel Wood energy. Yes, I did too. Uh, off of both the character and the actress is very similar. Very similar. Um, she, yeah. Which is a very pretty, like, it's a breakout role for her as well. She wasn't quite as yeah. unknown as... Um, as what you might call him, Edward Norton, but he also she also hadn't had a huge amount of credits to her name at that point either. Her first, uh, I mean, she was in a short movie as an extra in 1985, but her first credited screen role is as young teacher in Lorenzo's Oil, which was directed by George Miller. Oh, and yeah. like I know about that movie. Yeah, so she's got like this was her big breakout. Like she had just come off of doing Congo. That, that killer gorilla movie the previous year where she had starred with Tim Curry because that was a based on a, based on a Michael Crichton novel um, of course it was I've heard well. about it uh but there's all the, the, the what a twist they talk about it on the on the special features of the Blu-ray that this was a Richard Gere didn't even know who she was she's like really um, and the studio kind of was a little bit iffy about it too because they wanted stars you know this was the thing in the nineties yeah. was we wanted this we want to make this a vehicle we want to make this a star vehicle and we can we can market it. And instead, they got this theatre actor who'd never been in a movie before, and a woman whose biggest role before that and in was a giant killer ape. Yeah, um, and it's it's kind of like the the producers fought to get both of them, and and once Richard Gere had actually met Laura Linney and done a screen test with her, he was like, yeah, her. Um, and yeah. it's it's interesting that it gives both of them their careers basically, and they both go on to do all these incredibly acclaimed roles to be nominated for Oscars. It, it's the movie is responsible for the careers of both of them, and yeah. that's yeah. maybe and its, it's lasting such a legacy. Great performance. Yeah. And, and it's a great performance from Laura Linney where you can see that she is wickedly smart. Like, she knows her shit she knows, inside and out. She knows every move that Marty's Marty do, is doing. Yeah. And they go off each other very, very well. And how shaken she is after Roy like tries to strangle her in the courtroom. Which is one of the, that, the great yeah. moments of the movie, right? Where he hops mm. the, the witness stand. Um, and the way that she... Because I think it's pretty clear that she doesn't believe in the, the disassociative no. identity the sort of mm. thing. But um, when she's grilling him and he pretends to make the turn and he says, Where the hell do you think you're going? Excuse hey! me? Hey! You look at me when I'm talking to you, you bitch! Mrs. Stampler! Fuck you, baby! Come in here! And the look on her face as she turns around, she's like, what? Like, it's <laughs> it's such a great moment. And I like that they don't... They, they, they don't ever make her the villain. No, no. they don't. And that she's they, just and doing her job. They give her the moment afterwards also in the, the courtroom where she's clearly unnerved yeah. by this. Her hands are shaking. And she has that moment with um, Richard Gere where That's she's basically I, like, you knew that this was going to happen. Mm, and Gere's basically yeah. like, yeah, I did. It, 
it, it's, it reads to me like he didn't really think that Norton was going to like jump over the witness stand and start to yeah. strangle her, but he knew that this was, he was manipulating her to get yeah. her whole case to collapse. He knew that it was in with it. He, he knew that it was within the realm of possibility yeah. that Roy would pop out. Yeah. And I love the interactions with Afri Woodard as the judge. Alfred Woodard just doesn't have time for any good. of this crazy bullshit. No. <laughs> she just wants to go <laughs> home. She wants a normal nine to five yeah. job. Now she's got to deal with all of this weirdo pervert church stuff. Now there's a guy with dissociative identity disorder who's strangling people in a courtroom. She just no, wants she's none do- of it. She, yeah. she has to deal with Marty's personal vendetta against Shaughnessy. Yeah. Which is like... I, I love... I, yeah. Sorry, continue. I love how whenever uh, Janet tries to light a cigarette, someone is always there to be like, ah, you better not. This is a public building. <laughs> public building. You can't smoke here. And I love how the judge says, you better not be thinking about lighting that cigarette. You get the, that whole, you brought up the O'Shaughnessy thing. That's a great misdirect too, is yeah, all of is. the stuff with the housing development that you think it's going to be one type of movie. You think it's going to be like a John Grisham novel. And then it turns yeah. into something else entirely. And that whole... Yeah, that's what I was saying. You like, you think it's Philadelphia, but it's Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, you think it's, it's seven, Grisham. It's... You think it's Grisham, but it's actually Harris. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the great scenes also is when Gear is grilling Fraser's mm. dad. I just like calling him Fraser's dad. I know his name. I love... But... Yeah, I love how when he calls him to the stand, Shaughnessy just goes, oh shit. Because <laughs> he knows what's coming. And you know, I'm not entirely sure why that gets stricken from the record. I'm not entirely sure why the judge sides against... Because it's irrelevant. I think it, he's making a pretty good case for why it is relevant. Um, Gear, I think it's also because the judge doesn't want that yeah. shit coming down on her. Yeah. But Gear, even though he turns out to be wrong, Gear's making a pretty compelling alternate narrative for that oh, whole yeah, thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, before definitely. We, I, we... We've talked very positively about this movie. 60 million reasons why. Mm. Yeah. We've talked very positively about this movie, but I would like to just touch on what I think is the movie's greatest weakness, which is, I think, is the twist itself, actually. That it is the movie's greatest strength, but it is also the movie's greatest weakness, is that it is kind of a little too Byzantine for its own good when you really think about it. When you really start to unpack it, if if this, like, so, so Norton is this incredibly smart, cunning, evil character. So why does he kill the archbishop in such a public way? Why does he kill the archbishop in such a... um in such a way that so obviously leads leads back to him. Why is he not a bit more smart about that? And even like even like his whole plan to get off of the charges. I mean, yeah, uh, that's got to be on the fly. Yeah, that's got to be on the on the fly. That's got to be like really reliant on his lawyer behaving in a very specific way. And like I think I I, I think I was able to pick out the specific moment where he decided to go the dissociative identity route, and that was when he. St- snapped at uh, Francis McDormand and like you can tell that there's a moment where he reels back and I, I I don't know if I'm projecting which I tend to do as you know but I feel like that was the moment where he decided actually you know what that's a good idea because I can play with this I can but, play in this space yeah. because he had already established blackouts yeah as a thing and the third man thing was not working at all it wasn't going anywhere but if you go so back to also something. to that scene of the bishop where you see the archbishop being murdered which by the way is like yeah. a full-on friday the 13th kind of like practical effect of yeah. the fingers coming the off hands. um 
the, the, their hands being cut off with the knife. Uh, th- that's a plan. Say, the most disturbing thing in this movie was him without a shirt yeah. off. But that's a plan, right? That's not a heat mm. of the moment thing. No. Like he's the Archbishop is he's on the phone, isn't he? Or he's watching TV or something. Yeah. And oh, I think he's on the phone. The killer comes in from off screen. So this is not like they're getting into an argument or something. This is something that Norton's character has plotted off screen and is now putting into effect, which makes the yeah, whole getting away it. with it thing even more bizarre. Yeah, underlining the passage of the book and carving the thing into the bishop's chest. Yeah. Like, that in itself shows premeditation, and it shows that he was planning to do it. Edward Norton's co- uh, like, a uh, Roy? Are we calling him? Yeah, Roy. Because there was yeah. no, no, There's Aaron. no Roy. Aaron. Um, Roy even states, I had to kill Linda, the Right, C-word so he's done that first, too. Yeah, mm. the C-word deserved it, but killing Rushman? That was just a work of art. The And you, you and, also have to consider, I suppose, that if we had to follow that, there would never was an Aaron that was only Roy. Does yeah. that kind of guy seem like the kind of guy that would not have snapped earlier? You know? Like, like does, yeah. does this seem like the kind of guy that would have gone on with the Archbishop coercing him into doing these things for years? Because it's, it's like, it's not like, the movie never presents it as him having had a trauma-induced break, right? Once you find out the truth mm-hmm. of it. It's presenting him, yeah. him, him just being a psychopath. So if he's a yeah. psychopath, then why go along with all of the archbishop's perversions. Yeah, I get what you mean. It it does fall apart. Uh, or or he does have an identity disorder, and Roy is just and Roy's there been piloting it ever since. Roy's been piloting ever since, like child. But that's explicitly not the no no no. Or or maybe it's yep. that Roy was piloting piloting it ever since the murder was taken. The murder happened. No, he says there never was an Aaron. Why did he have a file on Aaron? No, no, there wasn't Aaron. Aaron's the real name. What he is saying is that that's always the, been his real the, personality, the, 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 and that's the, why they the cut all of the, and, yeah, and that's why they cut all of that stuff where Vale goes to his hometown is because that was telegraphing too often that this is not the this is not the real guy. This stuttering okay, shy okay. guy. So so it, it's not there was never actually an Aaron. It's just there was the never Aaron you that met version of yeah. Aaron. So the Aaron you met is so he not, is Aaron. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's not call. Call him Roy. I don't know why you told me to Roy. I'm you suggested it. <laughs> uh, didn't you hear my what, rising what is, inflection? Uh, uh, I said, uh, 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 "Is his name Roy?" I'll even go back and I will play the audio from me saying, "Uh, should we call him Roy?" Yeah, you're the one who floated the idea of just calling him Roy. Oh, uh, Roy? Are we calling him? Yeah, Roy. There's no Iron. No, you guys agreed with me. You nodded. And because like, that's okay, the truest representation of the character. Because even if his real name is Aaron, the two versions of him that we see in the movie, the true one is the one that's calling himself Roy. This is all unnecessary. Wait, Let's just move Bruce on. Wayne has, when Bruce Wayne has sex John, with Vicky Vale, John, you don't say, Batman is having sex with Vicky Vale. John, what we're talking about is we're using the exact same language that, that the movie Aaron himself is using. He is saying that the personality you saw as Aaron never existed, right? And also, if you really want to think about it, like, I don't know what it goes into in the book, but if you think about it, his real name might be Roy, and Aaron just might be an assumed identity. So all of those files and stuff... He's just been living under it that identity. He's just been living uh, under that identity while he's pretend while he's been pretending to be this this did you altar know that boy. The book has sequels. Yeah, I know. My God. Um, 
because <laughs> I've read the synopsises for them, and it just devolves yeah. into lunatic bullshit. Um, the right. the second really one is like a Silence movies. of the Lambs kind of ripoff, where mm-hmm. copycat murders start, and he's this Hannibal Lecter it figure. Gets shite. But then the third one, he apparently spoiler alert for the books. He uh, Roy dies at the end of the second book, and in the third one, he's back. He or he he's back pretending to be a blind cult leader, and Martin blind is Southern the state Baptist attorney Christian. general now. Yep. Like it went full on, you know, like crazy. And I'm glad that they never made a sequel to this movie out of those books because oh, that would not have worked at all. It's too much. This is a good one and done. Yeah. And it has sort of the same philosophy as Seven. Mm. It, it, but but they sort of cover it up with the idealism coming from Marty mm. until the ending when you realize, no, actually, yeah, the world is shit. And imagine... The world is dog shit and everything sucks and you shouldn't even bother anymore. And imagine if we had got a sequel where Marty has to, you know, square off against him again in this because he's the district attorney in the first sequel and then he becomes the the state attorney general in the third sequel. So imagine if you get all you get those two sequels as movies and you get all of this stuff between the two of them and it becomes this bizarre like cat nemesis cat and mouse nemesis sort of thing going on. That would just so undercut the last 5 minutes of the first movie yeah. Primal Fear. Yeah. Uh, it, it was because the important thing about the ending is it makes it seem like this is a high watermark in his life like this moment will will stick with him change forever. him forever yeah. this will change his entire outlook it on might it might actually war. end his career maybe if if Stampler goes out and kills another person no no if he if he can't do it anymore yeah, yeah. after this he's always gonna have that thought like, in the I, back of his head saying oh this person might tricking me like I often after the, this film, the the way it ends with him standing there in the middle of the street, it doesn't feel like he's got the confidence yeah. to become district attorney. And that look on his Honestly, face. Honestly, I was hoping I was hoping for a truck to come past and put him <laughs> out of his misery. That's Just, that's what the Breen version would do. Um, like legitimately, like he's going to take his next case. This person is going to be missing an arm, but he's going to look at this person and think, "Nah, bullshit. But, Where are you hiding it? Like the Where only thing that could have rubbed it in." More was it, the only thing that could have rubbed it in more was if like some guy had passed him and patted him on the shoulder and say, "Oh, great job, Marty! You you helped out that innocent kid real good." <laughs> <laughs> and just kept walking. Like no, that's no, the like, only the thing that would have like, rubbed the salt in the wound even more. It's like I actually. Good, it's like good job, Marty. I really hope that kid gets in. Or you just take uh, Stanley out of Spider-Man Three. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. I miss Richard Gere. Just... He's so good in this. He's so good in so yeah. many things. And he just, like, he kind of just vanished as the 21st century came around. Mm. Um, I mean, it's in because Chicago. he's very anti-China and he's pro-Tibet. Yeah. So once China became a really large film market, his very outspoken mm. uh, move, movements in favour of Tibet became kind of a... made him a lot less uh, profitable as a leading man yeah. than he used to be. I was, I was talking about this topic with... Uh, my mum and dad while I was having dinner and we, we sort of got onto the topic of voice actors for advertisements who can't get any more work because their voices are so recognisable and I said something that actually like broke Harley's brain for a second I said I want to be if I get to a point where I've 
got enough money. I want to be the Peter Pan of the discarded actor. I want them to be my lost boys, and I want to be able to give them roles that put them back in the mm. spotlight. I mean, that sounded insane yeah. when you said it. The way you said it. We uh, we've we had this Peter conversation. Into it. We've had this conversation before. It's like there are all of these great actors that are just sort of fallen by the wayside, and not even just in the way yeah. that you're talking about, but in like you have someone like Christopher Walken who now only gets to play parodies of himself. That you could mm-hmm. you could come in and I mean they're just waiting for a director to take them and give them a really great meaty role. It's like what Martin Scorsese did last year with The Irishman, where he sort of took Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, who have sort of been treading water for the last twenty years, and gave them something big and meaty and interesting to do. And yeah. they and Joe like Pesci as well. Um, and they get nominated for Academy Awards for it. I, I, th- I think there's like a lot of uh, of good st- of good actors out there that have just sort of their moment passed them by, and just whatever happened, they fell off the radar of Hollywood. And it doesn't matter how good they are, they just can't get back on there again. And there are a lot of them out there that you know that would I would I would like to see Richard Gere turn up in more things. I would like to see yeah, and, and see like finding a meaty role for these. I'm gonna call them the discarded ones. If you throw a really good meaty role in front of them, they'll fight over. Yeah. They'll, they'll fight over it, and they'll do their best in the role. And chances are, if you give them a good enough role in a good enough film, this could reignite their career. Yeah. You know what, Richard Gear sure. needs. You go and get a a good solid cable series or streaming series. You know? Yeah, yes. something that's really like like a Breaking Bad kind of thing, where he can really like show off in the lead role. This is what I think of a lot of of yeah. those kinds of actors. That's that's what they they need is to go and get something to to really let them develop and sit and uh yeah. explore character work. Yeah, like a good serialized drama gives an actor a shot in the arm to put them in movies. Like Brian yeah. Cranston. Brian Cranston got the shot in the arm from Breaking Bad and then he was in everything. I mean, I know it's not uh it's it's not a great example anymore because he's turned out to be such an awful person, but Kevin Spacey um yeah, exactly. was on a career downturn for most of the first decade of, of the 2000s uh like he was starting yeah he made a lot of pretty bad choices um and also uh was in bad movies yes yeah. um but uh the house of cards is what sort of revitalized that and then all of yeah. a sudden he's he's he has a brief resurgence before everyone hears about yeah. what he's been accused of doing picture, yeah, like, picture, it, picture it helps this. robin wright as well mm. uh, picture this you get richard Gere to be in the next season of true detective yeah oh, there you go that's the matthew mcconaughey make, thing it's the one two punch yeah and you yeah. make this one period like a 20s Ooh, okay yeah i was thinking get richard Gere to play a scientist in the next season of stranger things he played he was in a bizarre british miniseries um called mother father son last year uh which is a a psycho thriller set within systems of power in politics media and the police and he's playing this sort of media baron who is controls oh, cool. the news and it's this whole bizarre thing of um uh yeah he he's based on rupert murdoch apparently um <laughs> so it's this whole bizarre sort of family dynasty thing that he's trying to hold together and at the same time there's all of this weird political stuff going on that he's trying to contend with and uh power moves in politics and at the same time yeah. his his son is having a nervous breakdown and uh it, that is having the potential of spilling out all over the newspaper pages yeah. i just remembered um all that i've heard about it is basically like every week i would i would read in like some uh show business sites of like how crazy was this how crazy is it that 
this happened. Like, it's apparently supposed to be a pretty bizarre show. Uh, apparently, there's 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 a scene where the son having a nervous breakdown tries to rip off his own skull. Um, like, it's it's operating on a pretty high pitch there. I don't know. Maybe maybe I will watch that. I do like Richard. That's Gere. a good energy. Maybe I will put that on my my list when I come to assessing. Uh, what shows get to stay at the end of the year. Who knows? And I I do like the idea of, again, I have to say it, I would get him to play old Roger Waters in a Pink Floyd biopic. Adam Driver as young Roger Waters. Like, Adam Driver's far more attractive than young Roger Waters ever was. For sure. But he's got the same kind of nose shape and face shape. And, you know, the movie wouldn't go to China anyway because... Roger Roger Waters pissed them off. Roger Waters and Pink Floyd are very anti-totalitarian. Uh, so... But, you know, uh, like, there are so many potential ways for someone to help Richard Gere get back to, like, a Lithgow level in terms of just kind of being things. Like, he was in... Richard Gere was in bloody Movie 43. Yeah. Well, a lot of people were in Movie 43. And it makes me sad. Like, Movie 43 is... Movie 43 makes me sad. That's such a a weird story when you look into it, because there are so many popular people in it, but it's all like all these weird contractual things. No, God, no. But it's like Chris Pratt, Emma Stone, Gerard Butler, Chloe Grace Moretz, Elizabeth Banks, Kristen Bell, Hugh Jackman, Kate Winslet, Naomi Watts, Uma Thurman, Halle Berry, Justin Long, Anna Faris, Dennis Quaid, Bobby Cannavale, Leslie Bibb, Josh Duhamel, Richard Gere, Liev Schreiber, Stephen Merchant, Tony Shalhoub, Jason Sudeikis, Seth MacFarlane, Greg Kinnear, Terrence Howard, Common. Look, I... Please stop. I... That's just making me progressively Sorry, sad. Are you reading a list or are you just going off of memory? I'm reading a list. Uh, that was that was a quick Google. I had basically just brought it up. Anyway, I have the IMDB app on my phone. Yeah. So I think we've yeah, but, hit the end of our discussion. Yeah. But before we go, why don't we go around and say what our who our MVP of the movie is and what our favorite sequence or moment is. And I'll start us off. I've got to say that my MVP is Edward Norton. The movie doesn't work unless that character is exactly exactly the right tone yeah that character doesn't work unless you're just pitch perfect with it and he is it's a star making role he deserved the all of the accolades he got he deserved the career that he got out of that mm. uh and it it's a remarkable performance for someone who is my age which is frightening you know what have i done with my life i should have been <laughs> by the, the edward norton standard i should have been nominated for an academy award by now so yeah and by the tom holland bloody standard hardy and i should have been playing spider Man. But so, uh, yeah. it, it really is a, a masterful performance, and he steals every scene that he's in, and he is crucial to making the film work. In terms of my favourite yeah. scene, uh, I've got to go for the reveal, because it's such a gut punch. Even when you know it's coming, it's such a gut punch. I can't imagine what this must have been like watching it if you didn't know that that was about to happen. It's so well done, and the way that it just sucker punches Martin Vale's character in the face. Yeah. And that that crushed look of just shock and bewilderment that he has as the whole film just ends and cuts to credit. Uh, he looks like a deflated flailing tube. Yeah, man. it's one of the most haunting moments in movies I've seen in quite a while. This is coming after Seven. Mm. Well, I said um, one off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the ending of Seven very similar. What if he um, went in there to? See, I, what if he went in there and like I don't know Edward Norton brings out Laura Lindy's head in a box or something? Maybe that would have been better. <laughs> 
That would have been nuts. It's like, oh, can you imagine and if... We, we oh, didn't really talk about it. We didn't really talk about it, but how creepy is it that you just get that throwaway line of, yeah, Lair, Linda, she's not... She hasn't run away. She's dead. She's... Who knows what happens to her? Who knows where she is? You know, who knows what yeah. that was like and how that went down? You don't need to know it, but it ma- makes him so much more frightening instantaneously. Th- yeah. Just that moment. That is so casual. It's blood-curdling. Um, I think my MVP for this movie... No. I think it goes... It's difficult to choose, so I'll, I think I'll give it to Richard Gere. I think he was able to put a lot of pathos in the character, and he was able to really show that this case is... that he he regrets even taking the case. And there are so many points where he thinks he's going to fail. He, he snaps at, you know, people, people who work for him for not being able to find anything, and they're not to blame for that. No one can find anything. And I just think it's a really good character, very well reasoned out. Uh, I give a, like, secondary MVP award to Andre Brewer because, by God, his comedic timing is just brilliant. Um, and I think my favourite scene in the movie might either be when Andre Brewer is on the stand or it's the scene between uh, Martin and Martin and Janet in bar. Because I love that little back and forth of, you know, I'm not going to use the tape, but you know, you are going to use the tape. I I have motive. Yeah, but what is it? Are you going to tell me? And then she walks away with the tape. Like, I, I think damn, you son of a such bitch, a... you know I'm going to use the tape. Yeah, I, I think it's such a brilliant little tit for tat and their relationship is so well plotted out. You can see the exact moment when they actually start to fall for each other a little bit again because they are both so tenacious. Uh, my MVP, I agree with Lawson. It, Ed, it's career starting. It, it started the whole... Edward Norton has dissociative identity disorder roles. Yeah. Uh, which uh, which is hilarious to me, because he does uh, Fight Club not too too long afterwards, uh, and eventually plays Hulk. Yeah, uh, for a movie. It's a great character, and Edward Norton is having, especially in that final scene, he's having the time of his life. The the absolute joy the and elation glee in his he has when going, when talking shit to Marty, it's just brilliant. You love to see it. Uh, but my favorite scene has to be Andre Bravo on the stand in the witness box. It's just <laughs> hilarious. All the little signals that Richard Key is giving to him and the uh, the whole uh, it's like, so, is have you been to my apartment building? Allegedly. <laughs> it, you can see like little bits of Captain Holtz yeah. in there even back then. It's just brilliant. God, can can you please be in? Uh, so, what do we got next week? Also? Well, Next week we will be doing a run on the. Uh, I will. I will be not you guys, but I will be talking about the entirety of the Mission Impossible series. And so for our deep dive, we will be doing the most recent and, in a lot of people's opinions, the best Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible. And I Fallout. have to agree. I have to agree. We'll get into that though. If you would like to watch along home, it is available for streaming if you have a Netflix subscription. It's also available for purchase or rental digitally on the Google, Microsoft, and YouTube stores. Oh, and the Apple stores. The but Google I- and YouTube stores being linked because it all goes through. But, uh, the, and it's available for Apple on purchase, but not rental. 
Interesting. Uh, you can find us at each of our, each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counter. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side. You can reach us through our Twitter page, On the Bright Side 1. Uh, if you type in the title of the podcast, you'll, you'll find yeah. us pretty solidly. I've wanted to ask you about that title for your blog specifically. Firstly, why that? And secondly, what do you get from the Candy Counter? Um, it's just because uh, I was out of things. Um, I was out of things... Ah. I was out of ideas, and then I thought of that documentary movie, Exit Through the Gift Shop. I just did that. Yeah, <laughs> like just so much think to it. I would, I would, if I had the time, if I had the uh, the foresight, I would rebrand it. But at this point, yeah, why? Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, give us a part f- of my question. What do you get from the candy count? Oh, um, I normally, if I get a candy thing, I normally just get M&M's or something. I normally get them. Something easy. Yeah. Like a little munchie, basically. Yeah. For me, my go-to's, uh, probably Mentos. Yeah. Really? I'm partial to Mike and Ike's for, like, a cinema experience. Because they don't get too sticky, and they're in a good, like, box that mm. if you've not finished them, you can walk out. See, I normally, uh, I normally go to the movies at night. Um, so I normally get, like, a meal to eat yeah. from the cafeteria like i normally get like a chips with melted cheese and bacon and stuff with sour cream yeah. and sweet chili sauce that's good stuff the worst thing for what the worst meal ever for one's bowels i would like to go back to the cinema soon please uh yeah i know if if i had that before before sitting down to watch a movie he's gonna that's miss playing half with fire john didn't miss half the movie uh so it uh, got to the point where i had to actually like not eat before going into uh, a movie just to be Sure. Yes. Uh, oh, there you go. I just looked it up, and apparently, my local movie theater is saying that they are looking to open on June the twenty fifth. We'll see. So, which movie is that? I hang on. I don't know. It's unclear exactly what what uh, they'll be doing, but I, I imagine that some of these ones that have been released online that they could just get permission, like to, trolls, and yeah, that they could get permission to do a print there. Oh, apparently. Oh my god. Scoop, uh, okay. Okay. Scoop, so they've they've scoop, scoop. they've actually actually listed two movies that they're replaying the first is peter rabbit because it's the start of the school holidays the other is steven okay. soderbergh's contagion <laughs> like, <laughs> so okay i might not Last actually go and see that one even though it's on the list uh because i might not want to watch that at the moment so yeah. a little too real yeah. Uh, give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice. Yes, subscribe to uh, us. Yep, all of our contact stuff for our blogs and whatnot are in the description, wherever that appears upon your podcast app of choice. Um, yeah. I think that's about it. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, I've been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. Or will I? But there was never yeah. really a Jean. See, what you don't know, listeners, is that there, re- ne- there, there never was a Jean. It's just Harley the whole time. He's doing both sides of this. <laughs> because I'm insane. <laughs> uh, later. <laughs>